Welcome to the audio commentary for Son of Samson. This is David DelVal, film historian and author, and I'm joined today by my good friend Michael Verratti, who is a writer, director, producer. He does it all, and I'm so happy to have him with me. Thank you, Michael. Uh, this is our first sword and sandal peplum, and I don't think we could have picked a better one because this one has it all. All the tropes are here. I absolutely agree. I'm excited to take this trip to the the desert with you, David. Well, this ancient, it's ancient Egyptian. Now, what we're looking at now is all second unit stuff shot in Egypt. So enjoy it. And one of the things I wanted to bring up right from the start, we're both big fans of sword and sandal, peplums. Uh, we both watched them as kids. I watched them on television in kind of atrocious pan and scan you know, threadbare prints and, uh, you know, you didn't get a sense of the grandeur and the sweep and the scope that these movies had when they first came out. This one is the third of uh, the third one to come out after the enormous success of Steve Reeves' Hercules and then followed quickly with Hercules Unchained. And then Mark Forrest steps in and does a Hercules, and then he does this one, uh, which, of course, we can talk later on about why it's not a Samson movie. Yes. But uh, did you come to Sword and Sandal through television as well, or did you happen to see any of them in a theater? Oh, no, definitely television. Uh, and you're right. I think that there's something to be said about finally getting to see these restored and in this lush presentation because by the time they made it to TV, they were so muddy, we didn't really get a sense of the grandeur. And these movies really were made to be considered in an epic scale. And I really just, you know, watching this was taken with how beautiful it is. Well, you know, going back to the original Hercules, which kind of kick-started all this in 1957, 58, and then it made it to the States in 1960, is what I'm hoping will happen, Michael, now that a number of these films are going to be out on display in their correct ratios and with all the beauty that can be mustered with the color corrections and everything. It's going to hopefully give a new luster to the first two Hercules movies that were kind of denigrated unnecessarily because all of the absurd sequels and reboots that came afterwards kind of diminished the uh, historical significance of the first two. So I'm, I'm hoping that that is one of the, the, the benefits of putting all these out. What you're seeing here at the beginning, which I found really uh, interesting, Absolutely. And, is the violence in this movie for, 19, for 1960. Well, this is such a big opening scene. And when you consider that this was all done practically, it's something that I always like to remind audiences of today, that things, that would have been done now via computer or through trickery, they mostly had to do this with feet in the <laughs> sand, heads incredible. in the sand. These extras are very close to being in danger as, as horses run by their heads. Oh, I, I look at these guys. I don't envy any of them. But you know, this spawned a kind of film modie, as my friend Curtis Harrington used to say, Tinto Brass saw this movie and loved it. And when he came to do his own magnum opus, which was, of course, Caligula, he had a scene where 
horses are 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 employed and and heads are buried up to the neck and then they're cut off so this movie certainly inspired a lot of people for the better or for the worse there are those that love caligula and rightly so and there are those that were appalled by it and rightly so but it is an influence and you know i can't help but look at a, a scene like this and it, it it harkens back to way back to 1932 and the mummy you sure. know and the procession of of the slaves taking the tomb to where it's to be and then they're all killed of course that's what what's going on here and now of course we're in this the the chamber of the pharaoh where everyone is wearing these enormously kind of uh, they look like urinals actually but they're and would you not agree david that there is a a touch of cecil b demille to all well of this as there's well. definitely a nod to demille's the sign of the cross which was exemplified by terrific sets and incredible costumes. And this movie, as you can see, is part of that. Uh, you know, it's got great set design. It's got wonderful, you know, all the second unit location work in, in Egypt. And it's got, you know, a lot of energy. And what you're about to see here in a moment was cut from the American prince because we have a bit of nudity Ooh. when the evil queen makes her makes her debut. And I have to say, these movies rise and fall on who the evil queen is. It's usually one of these hot babes. And I think if you look up the word hot babe in the dictionary, you're gonna see a picture of this amazing woman, this Cuban, uh, there she is. Yes. And let's take a minute to talk about her. This actress, Chelo Alonzo, uh, she got, you know, shared top billing on this movie, and justly so, because at this time, you see a lot of these actors recurring in these adventure films. All of the people who work on these movies are working actors, working filmmakers, with hundreds of credits to their names, because th this is their livelihood. But she really was one of those who rose above uh, to become a, an iconic figure in, in the peplum subgenre. And I love it because she really began as a dancer in Havana. Did you know this, David? Well, uh, actually, yes, because all of her films are exemplified by a marvelous dance sequence, right. kind of like the Dance of the Seven Veils. In this, we get the Dance of One Veil, but it's just enough. And uh, I loved her. I first saw her opposite Steve Reeves in a movie called Morgan the Pirate, which was not a Hercules movie. It was putting Steve in a different milieu. But the wonderful thing about it was uh, Steve is like dressed as a buccaneer. And of course, she's the incredibly hot slave girl on the island of Tortuga. And when Reeves takes his shirt off, the camera pans to her, and she gives the response that everyone in the audience, male and female, has about the, the, the splendid physique of Steve Reeves, which of course, once again, Hercules, Hercules Unchained, the gold standard for these movies, and also at a time when a lot of men didn't work out. Right. All of this is fairly in, in the, our new generation, you know, where everybody's got six packs and everything. Back then, it was rather unusual for a man to look that cut, to say. But Steve Reeves did. Now, Mark Forrest has a great physique in this, but I think everyone agrees that no one really equals Steve Reeves visually. Right. And Although she is she is a pretty good uh, visual equal. Oh, uh, definitely, definitely. What I love about her is in that story that you just told is she has sort of a history of pooling focus and 
understandably so. You know, when she got her first attention for an exotic dance that she performed on screen, it was in Sheba and the Gladiator. Uh, which started. I need to see that yeah, one. And it starred Anita Ekberg, and her photo ended up being larger on the poster than Anita Ekberg's, which was a big deal. I bet Anita didn't like that. She too did much. not. That is true. Now, this fellow playing the Pharaoh's son, his name is Angelo Zanoli, and he's, he's quite good looking. And he made not only Morgan the Pirate with Miss Alonzo, but The Witch's Curse which is a machista movie uh, with uh, Kirk Morris, which is actually kind of fun because it brings the occult into the, into the picture. And also, Uncle was a vampire with Christopher Lee and Hercules Unchained, the second. And so, uh, Angelo Zanoli, there he is. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about him because he figures quite prominently at the end. Before I forget, since you mentioned The Witch's Curse, I think it's also important to notice that while that film, to mention that while that film shares some cast members with this, it also shares some footage. They reused footage from Son of Samson in some of the scenes in The Witch's Curse. So yes. in a very uh, thrifty move. A thrifty move. And, uh, you know, I had never, you know, this is one of those movies that I don't know that I saw on television. The ones that I saw in theater, which really made an impression on me, were like the aforementioned Morgan the Pirate. And of course, you know, Hercules and Hercules Unchained were reissued several times. So I did see it in a theater on perhaps a reissue. But to see it in a theater is to truly understand why these films have such an international following. And one of the things that needs to be said right now in terms of these movies, they Hercules kick-started the Italian film industry. Absolutely. And that cannot be diminished. What Joseph E. Levine did when he bought these movies and brought them to the United States, he spent a million dollars on publicity, therefore uh, catapulting Steve Reeves into stardom. This didn't always, lightning didn't always strike twice with the other American actors. But one of the things, the Italians would not tolerate an Italian bodybuilder for some reason. They wanted, an, well, this is true with, with co-productions. You want an American name. Hammer Films did this all the time. But that's what makes this particularly interesting and the fact that Mark Forrest not only is the star of this, but is the most recurring actor to play Machiste because he was an Italian-American. True, not from Italy, but he had an Italian name. His real name was Lou Degni. Changed once he went yes. to, to bodybuilding and show business to Mark Forrest. Uh, so he is sort of anomalous in, in the Mickey Hargitay, Steve Reeves sort of canon of bodybuilders. Well, you know, having experienced all of these men in one way or another, and I met a few of them, I feel that uh, Mark is the most relaxed of the act in the acting category. If I've, I noticed in watching him interact both with a lot with Miss Alonzo and the and the other actors in this is that he's far more comfortable doing scenes like that than, uh, say, uh, Ed Fury or, or Mickey Hargitay, although I love Mickey, so, and I love them all, actually. But uh, there he is, Mark, Mark Forrest, looking marvelous, and... Uh, Having what I can assume is not a very comfortable snooze in the sand. No, but one thing Mark liked to do 
in his acting these kind of roles. He liked to flex and show off his body. So you're going to notice a lot of moments where Mark is listening to dialogue and stuff, and he's he just shamelessly showing off his body. But that's you know that's what these movies are all about. So I'm I'm perfectly there for that. I mean, look, David, if I looked like that, I would be casually. I would never wear any clothes, you know, <laughs> and I would kind of stay away from animals. But there you are. Uh, but the interesting thing about Machiste when we get into it is that he, originally he was a Nubian, which means that he would have been a lot darker than most of the actors who have played him. We're only going to get suntan guys here from being out in the sun most of their lives. But that's an interesting thing because no one has ever played Machiste as he really was. Well, it, it's interesting also to note because of just the era that we're in that there's obviously going to be a lot of racial disconnect with how these characters are cast. You know, even with, with the casting of Chelo Alonso, how she became part of the peplum subgenre was they were looking for actors and actresses that they deemed to look exotic. Well, you and, couldn't get more exotic than her. Sure, but in in even saying that, there's still kind of like that is a that is a weighted statement because she may look a certain way but does her look fit the region of the world that they are representing? Maybe not. Well, when they found, when they finally discovered in the ocean a bust of Cleopatra, they realized that Cleopatra, by the standards of her time, was not a great beauty. She was not the Helen of Troy that launched a thousand ships. But see, being historically accurate is really not part and parcel with these. What is part and parcel with these is what we're watching here, which is how many of these does the strong man kill a, a, a bear, a lion? You right. Know, and I absolutely love the cuts between the real lion and that stuffed lion that he's Well, just you mean the rock that he, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that was part of the charm of these. You know, as I said to you when we were talking, because Michael and I have done a couple of these before, we've never done one of these sword and sandals before was that you know the tendency to kind of go off on the dubbing and laughing and you making it mystery science 3000 we just don't want to do that because these movies are too important to they've been laughed at and made fun of for far too long and one of the reasons that was allowed or that existed was primarily because no one really saw these as as the as uh, the movies they were meant to be, and I'm not saying that for all of the sword and sandals because, as we notice with anything, even with the horror genre and particularly the western, of which this is very much akin to the westerns. And remember, when the sword and sandal fad left Italy, it was replaced by spy movies and westerns, the spaghetti western. Well, that really kind of was the death knell of the muscle man sword and sandal movies when uh, Sergio Leone came in with the, you know, the man with no name and all that stuff. And to heckle dubbing, especially of films of this era, is to really misunderstand the moment and to misunderstand the production. I think it's very easy for modern viewers to make fun of something that they fully, you know, are not wrapping their minds around. A lot of these movies were dubbed because the casts were international. Most of them were not even speaking the same language when they were together, especially on Italian productions. A lot of Italian productions were not shot with sync sound. It is 
emblematic of a cultural moment and a style of filmmaking. And when you have a viewer just poking fun of it because they think it's silly or doesn't match with our, our current mode of how we watch or make films, it's to miss the point of, of how that movie was made. Well, once again, that's why it's so important that you know we're putting these things out for people to see them in the way they're meant to be seen. But remember too, even with the success of, of Hercules and Hercules Unchained, most movie-going audiences, when they wanted spectacle and, and mammoth productions, they're thinking of Quo Vadis, Ben-Hur, Sodom and Gomorrah. Although Sodom and Gomorrah, Robert Aldrich's attempt at one of these uh, peplums, was not particularly successful on its initial release. But I'm here to tell you, I would sit and watch Sodom and Gomorrah any day just to see Stanley Baker's, you know, that guy liner and all that, you know, beware of the sodomites. I mean, there wasn't a, there was it was a laugh track on that. It was so funny. Well, we've got Machiste throwing rocks here, which, of course, you know, his name means born of the rock. Yes. And can we take a minute and talk about Machiste? Because Absolutely. I, I Absolutely. think it's really important. First, I want to just give a little background for those who are not familiar. Machiste is one of the most recurring characters in cinema history first premiered in 1917 in a silent film, and is a figure of Italian cinema, uh, is essentially a superhero, I mean, in, in, in a classic definition of the sense. Uh, and it's interesting because when Machiste makes the move to America, the movies all get rebranded. It's suddenly Son of Samson. Samson has nothing to do with this no, movie. No, and trying to mix the biblical and the mythological, yeah. even though they have a lot in common, is kind of a problem. Right, and in other movies, Machiste is is turned into Hercules. I mean, at least in this movie, he gets to keep his name. Or Goliath. Or Goliath yeah. or Ursus. We see it uh, yes. time and again. Um, in this movie, he at least gets to keep his name, but he's given the moniker the son of Samson, whereas in other movies, when they do the dub over for American audiences, he's changed entirely to Hercules. Well, there's additional dialogue in this, since this is the American, this is the American soundtrack. They actually included dialogue that referred to uh, his character as being, we suspect he might be the son of Samson. Right. And But you know, if we're gonna get historically accurate here, this isn't the 11th century, it's the 6th century. The Persians didn't necessarily do everything by the book in this. And for the Egyptians to be worried about slavery, uh, excuse me, the Egyptians love slavery. <laughs> and, you know, to say that they were oppressed in a sense that, oh my God, they would never do that is not really... Well, case. I have to tell you, speaking as an Italian-American who has a lot of immigrant relatives, <laughs> a thing that kind of bums me out about the commodification of Machiste stateside, turning him into Hercules, turning him into Goliath, is it's sort of like, can't we have something? It's like, when you look at Italian imagery in pop culture, in, in the United States, really what people think of is is mafioso characters. Right. Uh, and, and Or maybe Mario, but Mario is actually a Japanese creation. So, you know, the fact that they did not bank or give any credence to the idea that maybe American audiences would be able to go along with the idea of this character. It had to be Hercules. It had to be Samson. It's just kind of a little bit of a bummer to me, uh, especially because Machiste has such a rich history. And this character is sort of timeless. As we know, 
Machiste is 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 a character that can exist in any time or place. And there have been uh, 52 movies featuring this character. 20, Good lord. 27 of which were made in the silent era, and several of which directed by this director. Um, and it's interesting to note that, you know, during the silent era, Machiste was not just a sword and sandal character. Uh, he could appear anywhere, modern Rome, ancient, you know, England. Asia, Asia, Asia yeah. yeah. It's when he moved to color in these peplum movies that he sort of became relegated to the sword and sandal for a while and became compared to Hercules. Well, this is the first machiste of the peplum era right which came out in 1960 just two years before the the hercules movies so yes it's a sh because you're right and it, it historically you know he's a he's the here he's an italian hero right and uh, when you look into the careers of of cinematographer directors like mario bava and i was trying to because mario bava might have had something to do with this he certainly worked on a number of the most famously Hercules in the Haunted World, and he worked on both Hercules Unchained and Hercules, and uh, even something like Eric the Conqueror. Eric, he did well the Viking movies too. Right. You know the Vikings. The well, you know they've even they've even put Hercules Machiste in in things with the Aztecs, with uh, with the a. You know they had a, a Mongol version with going, him going to Asia, so he could be put anywhere. And oddly enough, in this movie. Uh, you know, hopefully you've watched this before you're listening to us because here comes a spoiler. But there's all that flexing, by the way, that you're well, talking about. Well, of course. <laughs> if I had that body, I would be out there right now. And who's to say I don't? But uh, uh, the fact that um, um, he was able to... Uh, well, see, that's another point here with Mark. I think he's really relaxed and comfortable in this. And even Steve Reeves, bless him, you know, could be a little stiff sometimes. And it, it goes with the territory because this was exhausting to do. And they were shooting this in Yugoslavia in the summer in July. And then the, the second unit went to, to Egypt. But uh, this is a more lavish production than you're going to see subsequently down the road. And some reviewers have even commented on Mark Forrest not being quite so uh, pumped up uh, in the later ones. Of course, he's getting uh, you know, a couple of years down the road. He made these from 1960 to 1965. I believe he started as Machiste seven times? Seven times. That's yeah, wild. Fury yeah. did one and... Uh, uh, it's absolutely amazing that, but you know, when I talked to Mark about these movies, uh, I met him at a movie convention and he had this photo that I, I showed you uh, from Son of Samson. And the photo itself is Mark standing behind uh, like a, a, a monolith with hieroglyphics on it. It's a spectacular shot. And he looked at the picture for a minute and he signed it for me and he said, you know what? This may be my favorite. This might be my favorite because it was the most reviewed and it was the most enjoyed by the, he gets more letters about that. So, you know, I, I mean, for me, I can think of a number of other sword and sandal movies that I find for my personal taste, maybe a little more entertaining, including the Goliath that Mark did before this, which I guess was the vengeance of Hercules over there and then was retitled something else. Um, but the interconnectedness between all of them is undeniable. And, and I think that's what makes it the most interesting is the idea that 
if you didn't have some of the other movies you've referenced, Mark wouldn't have been scouted to be in these. And all of these people have prolific resumes. I mean, when we were researching out everybody who worked on this film. Oh, they're it, all, it's a glass bead game. They're all interrelated. Yeah. And of course, you were, we were talking about Mark started out, uh, you know, he didn't win the big competitions. He was like 27th in line for Mr. America, and he was Mr. Venice Beach in 1954. But Mae West who is the ultimate judge of male beauty from that period. And boy, was she on the money right up till Timothy Dalton and Tom Selleck. She put Mark Forrest in her nightclub act, along with Mickey Hargitay and a number of other bodybuilders. She took these, her cabaret act is what made Mae West solvent after she made her films at Paramount. And she traveled the world with these guys and they were introduced to everybody. So. Mark made the most of working for May. Now, May never liked it when the boys left, but she was fully prepared for it because there's always another one coming along. Well, it's funny because you keep referencing how comfortable he feels in this movie, and I, the whole time I've been thinking, well, that's probably because once you spend time with May West, you're prepared for everybody. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. And uh, uh, it's a shame that there are no like movies or video of May's show. I've seen clips, I think, from a newsreel footage, but uh, it's, it's, it's astonishing how, how much she could spot talent. You know, she was, should have been an agent, you know, instead of an actress maybe, because she, she certainly had an eye for talent. But once again, you know, these costumes and these, uh, these marvelous sets, and you know, this is what people come to these for. They want, grandeur, they want spectacle. But what I wanted to address about the dubbing is I didn't fully understand the union. There was a union that was very much in force in Italy during these, the, these films being made called the ELDA, which was the Language Dubbing Association. And these unions were very clear about dubbing. If it wasn't, in, in other words, if Mark Forrest or Steve Reeves did not put it in their contract that they were going to do their own dubbing, the dubbing was always assigned to other people. And when I've done a number of these with Barbara Steele, who of course was working in Italy, making the, the, the Gothic, the Italian Gothics during the same period of time that they were making these. In fact, she's worked with some of the people that are in these and she knew them all and Steve Reeves knew her. And she told me, she said, well, what happened in 1960, David, was when Cleopatra was brought over to Rome for Cinecitta with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, it was a three-year production, and we're talking the end of 59 through 62, and all of 20th Century Fox's money went into Cleopatra. It nearly sunk the studio. And during the time it was being made, all these sword and sandal peplum movies were using all of the, 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 the costumes, the sets. They, there were probably 50 movies made from the production manual the, from the production of Cleopatra just alone. Oh, I'm sure. And Richard Harrison, who I, I knew as well, that uh, I knew when I lived in Palm Springs, uh, he told me that, uh, he said, I just kept my, my, my cabana, my, my thing, between the two sets because the girls were coming left and right. <laughs> so it was, he, was having, he was having a real ball doing these movies. 
as were they all. You know, one of the things Mark said about making these, he said, there were so many wonderful lunches and great, he said that everyone on these had fun. It was hard work. Well, of course there were wonderful lunches. It's an Italian production. Exactly. Italian even in, folks even in Yugoslavia. Sure yes. Yeah, even in Yugoslavia. But uh, in any case, so, you know, once you get that, once you realize that the dubbing was something where you really had to set it in your contract or it wasn't something that was going to happen. You said that there was a dubbing agency? Yeah, it's the ELDA. And... Uh, you know, I used to to ask Barbara why she didn't dub her movies, and she said, well, it wasn't in my contract. And she said, I'm not going to leave my terrace to go redub a movie once I'm starting on something else. It is fascinating, though, because, you know, even though I, I adamantly defended dubbed films earlier and I stand by everything I said, it is, you know, when you are a cinephile who knows a lot of these people from other work, when you see someone like Barbara Steele, or recently I watched an Italian film that was dubbed over with a different voice for Donald Pleasance, and when someone has such a unique voice and you hear a dub voice come out, there is that jarring moment. Well, and it also can be a deal breaker because um, there was a movie that Christopher Lee did, we did several in Italy where he, has, he did his own dubbing, but he did a Sherlock Holmes in Germany called uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace. It was shot in Germany and he was dubbed by someone else. And it made it, it almost killed the film because without Christopher Lee's very distinctive voice, it, it's, it's hard to watch it, Yeah, you know? Uh, in I this love case, this headdress. Oh by the well, way. The, uh, the, these costumes are spectacular, and uh, and of course you expect that, and uh, I think that's one of the real. Well, you know, this is why a lot of people refer to these as a myth opera instead of a soap opera, because it's an opera that takes you into mythology and it takes you into the realm of the fantastic. Somewhere in this movie, I don't know if we'll even spot him because I looked for him in the couple of times I've watched this, Terrence Hill, apparently, Terrence Hill, the, you know, the, cow, the, the Western star uh, from the Trinity movies, apparently had a very small part in this, I think non-speaking. But if anyone, if even an Eagle Eye fan out there can spot him, there he is. He's there somewhere. Um, I was surprised to learn that the word peplum or pepla comes from the French, which refers to the short pleated skirts that the gladiators wore, most of the heroes and gladiators in these things. So the word came from that, like the word paparazzi comes from, uh, you know, the word insect. Uh, or or uh, mosquito, I think, is, is more uh, exact term for it. Well, film informing film. Exactly, exactly. We must go on. But of course, all of the tropes are here for your standard, what became the standard as these movies moved along. Because, you know, I just think that this one is such a good one to see for Mark because it's his first machiste, and it's also when he looks the best. Yes, he and looks he agreed fantastic. with that. He said that's why the stills he was selling at the show were all from this, because he said I look terrific, don't I? And I said absolutely, Mark, you look great. Well, speaking of Mark, I love that you called this a myth opera, and that's something that folks refer to these as because he himself had quite a history with opera. For he's for being known as this bodybuilder, uh, Mark. 
went on to be a tenor and run vocal schools? Well, if you really want to hear, I this morning, I listened to some of Mark's arias, which are on YouTube. If you want to hear Mark Forrest's amazing baritone voice, just type his name in and enjoy the show because he was really very talented. When I met him, and I still have the business card framed with my autograph, he gave me one of his business cards where he was a vocal coach. So he, he maintained his musicality throughout his life. And he lived to be, because he was in great, he lived to be 89. Now here's another thing. We're dedicating this track to Mark Forrest because he died just a few weeks ago. Truly, at the time of this recording, uh, which is in February 2022, Mark passed just... January 7th of, yep. of, of this year. And what it, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have him on this track, but uh, alas. True, but I'm glad we're able to celebrate him today. And we're celebrating Mark Forrest, who was a wonderful guy, and uh, he, you know, he had a great life. And sometimes... As I've looked at all these careers over over this period of time of doing all these commentaries, I keep thinking some of these people know when to walk away and begin a different career or do something else when they don't look exactly the way they're meant to. And let's face it, when you made these kind of movies, your physicality is what you're selling. Right. I mean, no one wants to say that sex appeal is part of the trade of these, but it is. Oh, no question. And I mean, the poster art gives it away, doesn't it? I adore, I mean, I'm a big movie poster collector, and or I was. And these stone lithos from the Italian productions of, of Machiste and, and especially the Steve Reeves movies, Thief of Baghdad, Morgan the Pirate, uh, you know, they're gorgeous and highly collectible now. And a lot of really great Italian artists like Ballister worked on them. And... Uh... Well, I love what you said about these actors choosing to walk away because we know Mark Forrest left the business to become an operatic singer as well as mm -hmm. a vocal coach. Yes. But his co-headliner and nemesis in the movie, uh, Chelo Alonzo, who we've been talking about. She also, you know, she had a very prolific career. From here, she went on to do more of these as well as uh, achieved some other success in the world of cult westerns. But she walked away too. She ended up leaving the industry to uh, breed cats and run a five-star hotel, which I absolutely love. Fabulous, you know. I mean, Tura Satana wound up, or no, Kitten Natividad. No, it was Tura Satana, Kitten Natividad. I can't remember. Yeah, it was Kitten. Kitten inherited an apartment building. So she wound up being a landlady and good for her, God bless her. Uh, well, you know that entertainment is a fickle mistress, so it's always good to know that you've got You don't else have going to on. tell me that twice, I know. <laughs> One of the things I discovered in, in researching these, which I did not know, but it certainly makes perfect sense to me, is the inspiration for these peplums goes all the way back to the period in American comic books from 1934 to 1944 when Alex Raymond was doing the Flash Gordon panels. And the Flash Gordon narratives that Alex Raymond created were a very accurate overview of what Italian peplums were all about the reimagining of Greek mythology. Right. And if you look at any of the Flash Gordon movies, you will see 
these same tropes, the evil queen trying to displace the rightful ruler, whether it's a husband in this one, she assassinates him right in the beginning of the credits. I love this. This is the ne necklace of forgiveness. No, of forgetfulness. forgetfulness. Which, of course, is a very serialized Flash Gordon kind of trope. This feels like something Ming the Merciless would use and, well, to And his daughter, his Dale daughter, Arden. yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's all here, it's very Flash Gordon. Uh, and you know, there was a period, remember, during the era of Flash Gordon was the, the, the Art Deco right. was becoming a very fashionable uh, thing. And Art Deco embraced Egyptian design like mad because the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1925 opened the doors for tut mania which meant everybody wanted an obelisk in their living room they mummy cases became de rigueur in anyone's home well and eventually the influencer becomes the influencee because if you looked at that that royal chamber that we were just in there was a lot of art deco flourishes in there including the pastel paints and things i would take all that stuff home if that were me you know i would take it all home and some of these guys, some of these directors actually did, you know, which is uh, which is interesting. But as far as uh, comparing it to the the to science fiction, you know, when Fellini did Satyricon, a lot of reviewers noticed, even though he was trying to, you know, as he famously put it, Rome before Christ after Fellini. <laughs> Man, you I, you'd have to tell me that twice. But a lot of reviewers said Fellini was showing a kind of space age science fiction locations and set design for Satyricon because Satyricon is a difficult movie to embrace because it's visually gorgeous, but it's it's a real for me and I'm just speaking for my own my own taste. It's a bit hard to get through. It's one of those movies where the stills look amazing. But to sit through it, it becomes a bit of a, it becomes a bit boring in places, which for Fellini is like, what? But that does happen because sometimes excess is not always success, you know? Well, you know, in constructing a world, sometimes people forget narrative. I well, mean, narrative's I'm... being forgotten a lot these days, I fear. But that's, I mean, and that is not a slight to Fellini. It was more so just the overarching idea that you, you talked about the science fiction of it all or the myth fiction of it all. Sometimes we, we so much in constructing these narratives want to uh, sell the audience and the world. We get lost a little bit in the imagery without the story and vice versa. Right. Well, you know, I think when people, well, DeMille learned this before practically anyone in, in show business was that sin and debauchery sells. But if you're courting the evangelical Christians and people that are Christian, then you need to have, you can show all the, the sin and debauchery you want, but there has to be a comeuppance. But let's be frank here, with Sign of the Cross, the reason that was a huge moneymaker in the middle of the Depression, people wanted to see Claudette Colbert's nipples. They wanted to see her take that milk bath. They wanted to see Christians eaten by lions and, and gorillas having sex with me. I mean, my God, when it, came to, when it came to access and debauchery, Cecil B. DeMille was unmatched, but he shrouded it all. In the, in the security of religion and got away with it.
I mean, his very last film was The Ten Commandments, which, you know, it took so long to make. It was his final movie, and made in 1956, just two years before the big peplum boom with Hercules. Well, and speaking of flesh versus function, what I love about this scene is throughout this whole movie... There's my role. <laughs> <laughs> David. Throughout this whole movie, Machista has just been walking around in a loincloth. But now to get in the city, he has to pretend to be a little demure. They're going to put this cloak on him. And, well, uh, he didn't like that at all. He does not. Well, because he can't flex through <laughs> well, the Well, no, he can't. I but mean, this is executive, it's executive city drag. He's got to go well, in. Well, he's an Alan Carr Moomoo's is what's <laughs> going on here. But but once again, you know, when you, I mean, looking at this now, it's just beautiful. And what makes me so, what, what's so interesting about how fervent the fans are, they love these movies even when they had to look at them through through shredded prints. Prints that were turning pink or pan and scan where you can't see the whole image. Well, because the quality of the imagery still shines through. I mean, it, this is still very lush. It's very well put together. I mean, the cinematography in this is, is quite good. This might be a good moment, Michael, to talk about the cinematographer for a moment and, and what he's doing some great work here. He is. Uh, the cinematographer for this movie was a gentleman by the name of Riccardo Palatini. Uh, he worked a lot in the adventure uh, and peplum genre, but also, if you are a horror fan, shot a lot, a lot, a lot of horror movies, and including worked with Antonio Margaretti a number of times shooting Castle of Blood, starring your pal Barbara Steele. Exactly, exactly. Well, the, the writer of this, Eno Di Concini, wrote Black Sunday, La Mosca del Demonio, which, like, it's probably a good point to bring up the... Uh, the connection between the revival of the horror genre and the revival of this of the peplum and the machiste things, the producers of this picture uh, also did *The Devil's Commandment*, which was uh, *I Vampiri*, which was the absolute first Italian Gothic, and. Uh, uh, the producers, Pero and Hermano Donati, uh, they played this similar thing, and they pioneered the revival of the Italian Gothic horror with The Devil's Commandment. And then, just a few years before, but, you know, unlike, you know, the two uh, that Steve Reeves did, The White Warrior and uh, Goliath and the Barbarians, you know, they wanted to cash in on the, the, the enormous success that Steve Reeves was having. So they decided to take a gamble and uh, go ahead and commission a script and look for someone to be like Steve Reeves. And Mark Forrest literally filled the bill on that. But once again, you know, when we talk about Machiste, we're talking about a character that, if we're talking about him historically accurate, he's a Nubian, he's not a white man, and he's not necessarily... Uh, a mythological figure because he's, you know, the Italians really didn't have too many mythological figures except for Machiste, did it's, they? It's true. Although I will say, in deference to people who maybe know this and are like, why haven't they brought this up since we have complained about Machiste getting swapped out for Hercules a few times, Machiste's name uh, also derives from a surname of Hercules's. Uh, Hercules owned a house um, that, that, the, the name was quite similar to Machiste, and it was 
That's where it came from. Right. Yeah. Well, apparently, it was just not only American distributors, but American television. When they bought these things, they immediately rechristened the heroes, either Col Colossus, Samson, Atlas, Goliath, Ursus, and operating with the, you know, between, you know, lazy and I don't care, they would just call him Hercules. And after all, that name is a catch-all. And in America, I don't think, you know, if they'd introduced Machiste in a certain way, it could have caught on. And then you would have had, nowadays, you would have probably used that to start a franchise. Well, it's just so anomalous when you think about it. The idea of taking another country's cinema or character and just rebranding it with something that is known to the folks of your country. They're like, imagine if we took James Bond to Italy and suddenly all of those movies were diabolic movies. It would, it's the same It's the concept. same, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, I think one of the things is what they did in billing Machiste as the son of Hercules. You know, this kind of, especially for embassy pictures, they bundled all these together. See, that was the thing, like the shock theater that I grew up on with Universal Horror, with the Peplums, they repackaged a dozen or two of them and called it under the umbrella of the Sons of Hercules. So if you're calling your collection the Sons of Hercules, Machiste doesn't fit in there particularly. I mean, it could, but that was just, I think that's what motivated Or it. maybe we all are, in fact, the Sons of Hercules. Well, I think I've certainly met a couple, that's for sure. But <laughs> the medallion pictures, which I had never really I knew much about medallion pictures, they took a different attitude, though. And when they bought over, you know, this movie, well, Machiste and the Valley of the Kings, which came out in 62, they, they cashed in on, you know, a different kind of blockbuster and uh, pretty much all of a sudden Machiste's the son of Samson. And of course, when in the American dubbing, as I said before, the moving of this obelisk is interesting. It recalls something that Vincent Price once said to me about making the Ten Commandments. He said, I was doing a scene where the obelisk was being taken up the Valley of the Kings and put up there for the Pharaoh's pleasure. And he said, I went to Mr. DeMille and I said, Mr. DeMille, I, my line, here lies the, the palace of Sethi's glory. And DeMille said, you're not giving that line any, any, any push, Vincent. And Vincent said, well, Mr. DeMille, I really don't know what I'm looking at. And so DeMille said, let me show you. And all of a sudden, he took him on another part of the soundstage over at Paramount and showed him the 10,000 people moving the obelisk. In the, and he said, now, I said, here's the palace of Sethi's glory with a lot more oomph, you know. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see these set, because these set pieces individually are wonderful. Stunning. But, but, you know, some of them, you can rearrange them and the narrative doesn't, it doesn't upset the narrative, which you couldn't really do with any other kind of genre except this one. And uh, all of the tropes are acknowledged here. You know, usually the strong man has a comical sidekick, which is always irritating. Well, it kind of comes in the form of this character here. That's, that's what made me think yeah, of yeah. it, yeah. Who, um, isn't necessarily comical as a untrustworthy character who was won over by Machiste's goodness. 
Well, yeah, and that's interesting too, because machiste could be someone who is devoid of emotions since he's born of a rock. I mean, if you really take him literally, and you don't really know, we don't get much of a backstory about him. Yeah. Uh, you just kind of take it for granted. And of course, there would have been a backstory if they'd wanted to introduce Machiste to American audiences. I do have the question. Um, considering the time that this movie set in, how do you suppose he gelled his hair? Well, the same way Joan Collins did in Land of the Pharaohs. She went into Beverly Hills and had it done. <laughs> well, you know, the vanity of these guys. I mean, Steve Reeves had a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty solid ego, which I think is, is justified. And uh, in these kind of movies, we have to have scenes like this. I mean, this is absolutely, this goes, if you want to talk about Samson and DeMille, this goes back to Samson and Delilah, made a few years earlier in Hollywood with Hedy Lamarr in one of her signature roles as Delilah, and kind of an unlikely muscle man in the form of actor Victor Mature. Victor Mature had a decent physique, but he didn't have Mark's physique, and he certainly didn't have Steve's. But, you know, he, he pulled it off, and DeMille believed in him. And Victor used to famously say, you know, I'm no actor, and I have 38 movies to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, I love his candor. And he wound up in The Monkees, one movie that Jack Nicholson wrote called Head, Head which yeah. I definitely think is a fun movie. But, you know, as we were saying earlier, as far as trying to be historically accurate in these things. I think you can pretty much disregard the historically accurate and in favor of the historically illiterate because the 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 opening of the US version of this, you know, well, is so is so inaccurate, but who cares? Knowing you know? that these came from Flash Gordon or were inspired by serials. I, and comic books. In comic books, one has to sort of look at this as stylized fantasy. Maybe not fantasy in the way that there are witches and wizards, although we have the magical amulet in this that causes forgetfulness. Well, no, no, there's definitely yeah. occult themes in here. Yeah. But still, you know, one of the great joys of these, if when we're looking back from the era that we happen to be living in right now, is CGI takes care of everything. In these movies, if you needed, like DeMille, if you needed 10,000 extras, you got 10,000 people out there. Right. And, you know, when you look at films like Quo Vadis and the, the Coliseum scenes, now when DeMille did Sign of the Cross, he didn't have the money to have all the extras. So, you know, he did a Roger Corman and he had certain extras placed in certain places and with clever editing and camera movements, he was able to create the illusion of a lot of people. Well, and I'm going to say this. When it comes to good cinema, anachronism should always be second to glamour. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. And what made these movies so enjoyable, especially for adolescents, is not only the idea that you're looking at history. I mean, this is from the same group of kids that when they're given a book report, they go get classics illustrated. <laughs> I did that with Tom Sawyer because I wasn't going to read it, but that's another story. But uh, this kind of gives you a boy's life view of history. I mean, uh, I wish we had done a book report on Son of Samson. Actually, we kind of are right now. Well, indeed, indeed. Yeah. And I mean, I'm so glad. Isn't it weird how life works out? You know, I meet Mark Forrest at one of these shows like 20 years ago, and here I am now, you know, finally 
giving him and he would be so pleased and that's that makes me feel good too because he did not like a lot of actors you know he had no bitterness which is wonderful uh and he looked back on this period of time as something that he really was lucky he said look this financed my opera career i have every reason to be you know grateful and uh, and I, I love these uh, these pink tunics. These guys. Oh, this kind of ventures into Willy Wonka a little. I mean, this Oompa Moompas could be <laughs> very much like this. But it's interesting that this movie, which is a little under ninety minutes, it takes a full hour before we get to all the action. And I know that it a lot of of fans, especially the younger ones that didn't grow up watching these on TV like we did, kind of look at these and they're, you know, they don't have an attention span to get them from the, the 60 minutes to the 30. And so they sometimes switch off a movie. And I'm hoping that because these are presented in such a perfect way, that you will, you know, please be patient and enjoy, you know, the journey to get to where, you know, where the action is. Well, I think it's the difference between action movies of yesteryear and action movies of today. It's almost expected because of, of instant culture that from the time the movie starts, we've got bang, bang, explosion, action, Oh, fight, you know, people walking away from a huge explosion, right. yes. But here, part of the, the magic of this story is everything that the action is a response to is set up earlier in the movie. We are are made aware of the circumstances that require action. And I think that that's a, a testament to the storytelling and the different styles of storytelling. We want to know why Machiste has arrived and, and why he's fighting. We don't want him entering, you know, break. I mean, I'll, well, although he, the first time we but, meet him, he does fight but, a lion. But he but. enters as a hero. Yes. So we know from, from the very first moment he steps on terra firma, this yeah. guy is there for the good guys. And that not that the same situation with Westerns? Absolutely. I mean, the guy rides into town. If he's wearing black, he's a villain. If he's any other kind of, of, of dress, he might be yeah. your hero. And in a sword and sandal movie, if you've got a certain kind of uh, loincloth, you're the hero. Well, you know, the <laughs> whole peplum thing comes from these pleated skirts that these guys wear. And I know... Well, that's, I, not, that's not pleated, David. It's not pleated? What do I know? <laughs> it's, just, it's just intricately tied. He's just, he's, just tied a, he's just tied a towel around his waist. That's what he's done. Well, you know, one way you have to look at the revival of the sword and sandal things of the 50s and 60s is to separate them maybe into two kind of parallel worlds, the historical and then the fantastical. On one side, you know, you have more or less realistic movies with gladiators, you know, and Vikings and so and Egyptians and everything with their obvious, you know, ties to Imperial Rome and things like that, like you get in Spartacus, which of course is considered the gold standard of, of sword and sandal movies that Kubrick directed. But oh. you really you really have to notice, ah, well, if what movie would not be complete without walls closing in? Yeah, was, we love we love a booby trap. Oh, definitely. And you know, movies like Hercules and the Haunted World, you know, where Hercules has to go into the under uh, the the underworld, into Hades. To, to recover things. Um, then you get into you get into fantasy. And 
I think these kind of straddle the line, not between horror and fantasy, but between spectacle and, and fantasy. fantasy. I agree. Because from closing walls to alligators, just well, there, there's definitely some alligator action in this, which we're about to see. In fact, yeah. alligators there play they are. a big. There they are. In somebody's backyard pool, it looks like. Well, this is the evil queen. This is one of, this is why this evil queen is so evil. She what what would you do if you found out this your queen kept a, a little a little a little pond of crocodiles or alligators? Are you asking me what I would do if I found <laughs> out the leader of my country was a bad person? Well, you would probably you probably get wrap in a fetal my mind around no, you probably concept. get in a fetal position and watch Son of Samson like the rest of us. But yeah, I mean, you just have to take you you take the historical with uh, you know a grain of a grain of salt, because you're dealing with guys that are super strength, superhuman, maybe supernatural. They're all born from gods. Right. I mean, if you're going to imply someone is the son of Hercules, who is a god, uh, Samson, you know, is uh, anointed by God. So you're talking about mythology already and right. fantasy in, in a sense. But these movies, you know, I don't think a lot of people, I think a lot of people took for granted once they got in the, the treadmill of Peplum, which is once you know you like these, and, and of course they wouldn't have made the, the, the countless number after this. I mean, after the Son of Samson, they just got more and more not I say out of control. The budgets got less. The 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 uh, adherence to detail became less important. And even the actors themselves. If you look at uh, even Steve Reeves, if you look at some of the later movies, the energy is gone. The enthusiasm perhaps is gone because anytime you you do something too much, you know, you're always in danger of of. Uh, wearing it out, wearing out its welcome. But these were insanely popular from 60 to 65. And then from 65 on, you start seeing the, the resurgence of the Western. And remember the Westerns came in cycles. I was distinctly remember going to a premiere of a film called Silverado. And it was like this movie's not going to do any good because westerns are dead, right? And but 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 the movies that are in fashion, it's always cyclical. It's what you're saying. Once Peplum's hit, there was an insatiable appetite for them until people got full. We saw it with the slasher boom of the '80s. Oh, absolutely. We see it with all sorts of different uh, motifs with comic book movies now. Mm -hmm. It will have a rise and a fall, and it will be back. And maybe through the discovery of these movies, it will kickstart a whole new generation of peplum. Well, I think it will, because one of the deterrents always with these movies, and like the old monogram Lugosi's, was when are you going to see a decent print of something? And when public domain reared its ugly head, you had, I remember movies that should have been, I mean, Roger Corman didn't copyright Little Shop of Horrors or any of the movies that he's known for at that in the 50s and the same thing happened with movies like uh, carnival of souls and house on haunted hill they were in public domain forever and then finally when you know dvd boutique companies started doing 2k 4k transfers of things all of a sudden you're experiencing a movie for the first time and it makes a huge difference when you can see these things 
in their proper aspect ratio and with the color restored. When I first saw Lucchino Visconti's The Leopard, I couldn't get over the difference in having seen it, you know, in rep theaters in Berkeley and so on, and then to see it restored on the big screen. Same thing with My Fair Lady. Any movie that's, that where the color is beginning to go and, you know, it needs a major, major restoration, this is what the Motion Picture Academy did. This is what the late Hugh Hefner did. One of the great things Hugh Hefner did, aside from establishing the journalism and the Playboy empire that he did, he spent a lot of his personal fortune restoring movies. And to that, we owe him a big thank you. And he adored these movies, by the way, Hugh Hefner. And I wonder if he probably screened this. He he mainly had D, uh, DVDs towards the end and VHS. He had a whole room full of them, I'm told, at the mansion. But I think he had a special place in his heart for these because, you know, what young boy doesn't want to be, you know, a he-man? And think about it, how many of these muscle men movies had a sequence where a young boy is introduced to one of them. Oh, Hercules, Hercules, can I go with you? Can I be part of your... And Yes, young man, you yes. can come with me. Well, that was the scene we just had, truly, where Machiste was rallying the people, the idea that you can be rallied to adventure, that all you have to do is have it introduced into your life. Now, I want to take a moment again to point out how amazing the costumes are here, because we're seeing all level of costume, from the grand regal royalty uh, to you know what everybody else is wearing. This is all intricately done. As you pointed out, these are all extras that had to be found and hired. And dressed and, and dressed. fed and, and all. All that, yes. And, and I did want to take a moment to recognize uh, the costume designer of this, Maria Di Matteis, did excellent work. Um, she did a lot of biblical movies and period pieces, which makes sense because I think when you find your groove, you do it. Uh, well, yeah, and she wasn't copying from the 20th Century Fox costume department like a lot of the. But see, that's came down the road. A lot of the lesser, more fly, not I want to say fly by night, but the ones that were made really quickly. Right. Uh, that is not to say she didn't pull from other biblical epics that she worked on. She well, they were all being made yeah, at the yeah. same time. so Because she costumed the Bible in the beginning and Barabbas. Oh, well, there you go. And yeah, that's but... a huge production, too. But I think sometimes a film not having a huge budget is to its advantage. And Absolutely. I'll tell you why. Because imagination and being inventive to me is almost as good as having millions of dollars to get it you know, to, to do it correctly. Well, when you're forced to be innovative, you create things that you might have otherwise just thrown an easy fix at. And that's what makes a lot of these movies special because they had to think it through rather than just be like, okay, well, we'll pay for it. Well, we can't, so how do we do this? How do we fix this? How do we have this epic grandeur on a fixed budget? Where people won't, and you know, you're hoping that the fans won't notice exactly. the difference. And remember, even at the time these were being made, television was becoming a real threat to the motion picture industry. And so it's it's interesting though that that, that you know now we've got it restored in here. You got the nude scene, and the, of course the violence in this is uh, well. If it influenced Tinto Brass, it gives you some idea of 
of how compelling it was for, for, for these people. Well, even we had just had a scene of torture a few minutes ago. Well, and those became more and more uh, popular, but nothing was as violent as this for 1960 that I can recall. It's true, but this is the DNA for almost all of All of them, evolved. yes. Yeah. And, you know, we just witnessed a little bit of a chariot race. Of course, you can't have a chariot race without reckoning with the famous one in Ben-Hur, which, of course, cost millions of dollars and, and took weeks to film. Right. That was in a coliseum. This is uh, kind of... Well, we're kind of implying, too, if this is the 11th century or even the 6th century, were they doing this? Well, who knows? And but does it matter? They're doing it now. Right. No, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I'm bringing it up because I guess if we're going to talk about this, I mean, being historically accurate, as we've said a few times on this track, is not really what we're going for. We're right. going for effect. We're going for excitement. And now that we're in the we're in the home stretch with this, we're coming to where the action is and where Machiste is going to do some once again, you know, this this what used to be called in England Kensington Red. That was the the what you when you ordered blood up hammer films especially. Give me some of that Kensington Red Gov and we'll put I think they're using an abundance of it here as well. Oh, but it's so this could be striking. like Roman Roman blood, you yeah. know, or or uh, uh, I haven't caught Terrence Hill yet, but we may have, you know, I don't know if he was just an extra or if he actually had a close-up perhaps, but uh, he would go on. Everyone in this went on to other things. No, when you go through and look at the filmographies of everyone who worked on this movie, it's not just a handful of films, it's hundreds of films per person. It's, it's astonishing. This was a truly prolific era from working artists and journeymen, and it's a very different industry than it is today. No, and that's one of the great reasons to have these to enjoy, not just as historical uh, references to film history and all, but you know, it's a type of filmmaking that's no longer being done, and it's it's you're, it's like we're in a museum, you know, we're in a film museum now, and and uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, he's been waiting for that. Yeah, I can get rid of all these plastic things. And, uh, you know, Mark is doing a lot of his own stunts here, and he was proud to do it. But, of course, you know, they had to keep an eye on him because if he got injured or anything, there goes your production. Right. But, you know, he managed to perform a few real genuine feats of strength here. And he becomes, at least in my view, a real superhero. Uh, absolutely. I think that, I mean, this sequence alone is is the stuff of, of grand superhero. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, of course, what Italian genre movies would uh, would not raise the ante here uh, and bring out more? I mean, and it's interesting that when they, uh, Lou Ferrigno did Hercules back in the 80s, uh, you could see dramatically how slipshod it looked compared to the old films even though it was, you know, fairly, you know, reviving Hercules. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've made Hercules movies since then. I think uh, Kellen Luntz did one. Kellen, Kellen Luntz did it. And then Dwayne Johnson did Well, one. we have to remember, because you said this film was shot in Yugoslavia, in, correct? In, yeah. In, These in sets Zagreb. are phenomenal. There is an attention to detail here that if you're not going to put this in to a movie of this nature is going to be lost. You know what I'm saying? Oh, exactly. Well, I mean, look at these, look at these, uh, look at these uh, frame compositions. 
I mean, once again, the cinematographer is giving us what is a combination comic book, futuristic, historically glamorous uh, reconstruction of ancient of an ancient world. And it's certainly more accurate than it's not. Correct. Uh, and, you know, of course, I mean, I was looking, for example, like the films of Anthony Mann. I was looking at The Fall of the Roman Empire and El Cid. And remarkable as those are, and the same things that we're complimenting this movie for, we could certainly do with these grand epics that, that Anthony Mann directed. They all suffer from, even though those movies aren't dubbed, Sophia Loren, you know, James Mason, you have all these RADA, well, not for Sophia, but these RADA-trained actors speaking in the vernacular, even though they're in ancient Rome, you know, it's all Shakespearean. And when you're an adult looking at them, as I did recently, having watched them as a kid, I just found it kind of ludicrous. But it didn't take away from the entertainment value, but it certainly took away from the solemnity that I had as a child going in to see these movies like The Fall of the Roman Empire was a road show. One, they would maybe screen it twice a day. So you could only go to see this movie. They only screened it twice because it was three hours long. And they had souvenir programs and they treated it like you're going to the opera or something. It's an event. Cleopatra was an event with an intermission and an overture, just like in the theater. Well, and I think that's where this movie's comic book influences are so significant because while it has that sense of grandeur, it knows the kind of movie it is. It's selling you on the idea of that breathtaking pulp that you want from an adventure. Yes. There's, it's, it's the argument of highbrow versus lowbrow and what does that even mean? But here, it recognizes that if you're coming to see Machiste, what you really want is to have some popcorn and have a good time. Well, I'll tell you what the men in the audience want, because we're looking at it right now. This is where our leading lady, Ms. Alonzo, is shining. She is spectacular. She is stunning. And if I were to level a criticism at this film at this point, it would be we needed a lot more of this. Well, her legacy as a dancer, I mentioned earlier that she became known dancing in Havana, but from Havana, she went to the Folie Bergère in France and became known there well, as the it. next Josephine Baker, which is not something that the people not of that lightly, institute not at all. Would, would put on anyone lightly. And, you know, obviously her being asked to dance in all of these movies spoke to the fact that people knew... Wanted to see this, yes. There's a power here. Well, and if you're going to get biblical, the dance of the seven veils, I mean, what more can one say? If you love these old movies, may I recommend Salome with Rita Hayworth and the unbelievably amazing Charles Lawton... Uh, lusting, talk about acting, lusting after Rita Hayworth doing the Dance of the Seven Veils. Mark here, who's so busy posing himself, he's really competing with her. She's only got one veil, but let me tell you something, she's going to work that thing. And, and I think she's working it quite well. I do too. And, you know, I mean, look at him. I mean, Steve Reeves wouldn't have, wouldn't have been this cool about it, I don't think. And I love Steve Reeves, don't get me wrong. But Mark, I think if you're to give Mark his own character here and he did play hercules as well i think mark was a little more uh comfortable 
and a little more relaxed. Like I use the word relaxed for lack of a better term for what his acting style was, because Mark was very modest. I mean, if I even mentioned during the short time I, I chatted with him about you know, him as an actor, he said, no, no, no. He says, I know exactly what I was doing. And he said, I, I knew it was a means to an end. But having said that, he then backed it right up by saying, but I enjoyed these. And I particularly loved working with all these talented people. Well, his comfort here, I think also speaks to why he ended up portraying this particular character seven times, because he's so comfortable in his skin that this character is his. Whereas if he had stepped into the role of Hercules this soon after Steve Reeves, there's an onus Oh, there. absolutely. But and he got to make Machiste his own. He did. He did. And in Italy, you know, I mean, one of the... God, she's working that thing. I love it. I mean, but when, this is one of the reasons this film was... Because this film was a success. Well, they have chemistry. Let's talk. Oh, like, the, it's the, undeniable. Absolutely. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because he really liked her. And apparently... She was off camera, hilarious, which is a wonderful, you know, having a sense of humor is almost tantamount to being beautiful. And she had both. And, uh, you know, look at this. There's, there's, there, there's no problem here. I, I feel for as epic a nature and scope this story is, you have to kind of have a sense of humor of it if you're doing play. If you're gonna wear to that skull this. cap, yeah, yeah, yeah. you damn well better have a sense well, of humor. Well, if you're gonna dress, if you're gonna dress like him and you're gonna dress like her, yeah. and the scene is oiled up muscles and dancing, and have fun and cocktail gowns posing as, uh, well, you know that's always. I mean, the the most famous of the howlers of of biblical epics was the one that Paul Newman did early in his career called the Silver Chalice. And in it, Jack Palance, who was not known for being uh, understated, <laughs> plays a character. So I won't tell you, go get a copy of The Silver Chalice when you finish looking at the fall of the Roman Empire. And I mean, if you really want to get into these, I enjoy them and I especially enjoy them now that I'm at last, all of us are going to be able to see a number of these, quite a number of these cleaned up, widescreen, great sound uh you know i'm hoping that they will put more of the italian versions with them so we can see compare them uh but everyone was speaking different languages you know when i asked when i asked barbara Steele about making you know she did a film called la monte broncoleone with victoria gassman and it was kind of biblical with enormous sets and costumes and she said no one spoke the same language so if you were to see this thing without dubbing, it would be kind of a, a catastrophe in a way. But on the other hand, if you saw it in Italian, I've enjoyed seeing a lot of the, especially in the horror genre and in the spaghetti Western, I've enjoyed seeing some of them in their natural language. Right, and that's what I was speaking to earlier, the idea that this was how these were made. They were mostly international casts. Italian films frequently employed American actors as well as actors from Germany and England and elsewhere. And so there are multiple languages going around, but there's a unity in the dubbing that brings all those people together. It's a product of its time. Yes. There's a movie called Two Weeks in Another Town directed by Vincent Minnelli. And in it, Kurt Douglas plays uh, 
uh, an actor coming out of rehab. He goes to Rome at the height of this. It was filmed in 1962. And it was kind of a, a, a sequel to The Bad and the Beautiful, also about filmmaking. But when you see this movie, which is set at Chinichita in 1962, there's a whole scene in a dubbing chamber where Kirk is trying to get on screen this woman saying these love these love sonnets to this actor and it's not working and the woman dubbing who looks a little like lena ventura she says i don't know how i'm going to do this and he goes do you remember when we were living in hollywood and there was that wonderful ice cream parlor that made those tremendous black sundays oh my god and the banana splits he said okay i want you to do these lines again and think about those banana splits and those delicious chocolate sundaes. And the woman gets back on the screen and she goes, oh, Paolo, and she changes. <laughs> and I mean, I look at that and that to me is like, wow, that must have been how it really was to do a dubbing session in Rome in the 60s. How easy do you think it was to carry Mark Forrest out of this room? Good for these guys. Well, you know what? They look pretty fit to me. Oh my God, this has got to be my favorite sequence now uh, because when you have an evil queen, and I've certainly seen a number of evil queens on screen and off, I must say that Miss Alonzo keeping a pond for her pet alligators is is just a marvelous is a marvelous conceit. Well, and this is such a great third act finale moment for it a is sword indeed. and sandal kind of film. Well, not kind of film. It is a sword and sandal film because this is it. This is this is our man versus nature. You know, he has to prove his heroism to fight for his life against a true predator. Well, that one's kind of rubber, rubbery to me, I well, don't, but it's hilarious. Well, I mean, it's need great. I remind you about the, the lion rug at the beginning of the Oh, my film. God, I know. Well, listen, if you if we ever get to the loves of Hercules with Mickey Hargitay and his wife, Jane Mansfield, I rest my case. In this movie, which is low budget, uh, God bless both of them for making it, Mickey Hargitay does battle with a bull, a wild bull, that is a dairy cow that has been sprayed black. And it's put out in the sunlight for this big scene where he wrestles it to the ground. And while it's in the sunlight, the paint begins to drip. So you see the white coming on this on the side of the so-called bull. Well, so I mean, those are mom moments I live for. But in this, I don't think if you were if you're a kid looking at this, you're not going to notice that's a, a plastic alligator. No, because you're going to be caught up in the fantasy, which is exactly what, what you you're want supposed to be dying when exactly. you buy a ticket to this. And now he's going to rally everyone, as we talked about, into adventure. What you want when you're an audience member to be caught up in the idea that yes, I too can rise up and be a hero. And they're going to go fight the evil queen. Well, you know, all these people needed was a hero. It's right. time for a hero. And, I mean, all of these are... God, that looks like the front of Paramount. Uh, the, the, the thing that people really want from me... I mean, I have to go back to when I was a kid. And what I wanted out of these was... To, you want Even with horror movies and, I guess, Western... And definitely Westerns as well. You want to be taken out of your normal, everyday life. That's what we strive for. That's why these movies... Uh, these different uh, periods of time in the Depression. Horror movies were big. Musicals were big. And we're going to come in a time after the current crisis. Horror, mark my words, horror movies and fantasies are going to be huge again. Well, my God, we're in the middle of a giant renaissance of comic book movies. 
that has gone far too long with me. But you know, I mean, they have their place like everything else. I shouldn't say that. Well, it's the idea that you, you want to buy into that, that three act fantasy. Yes. Who is everybody? Act one. What's the darkest it can be? Act two. And how, how do you fight back it? and rise above yeah, it? Yes. Act, three. Act three. This is it's the it's the, it's the prototype. Exactly. And uh, you know, I mean, Yugoslavia here is a great kind of substitute for uh, for ancient ancient Egypt or ancient Rome. I mean, or... look, if we were not tasked to know this, so we could do the commentary track. Just watching this, I would have just bought wherever they told me they were supposed to be because I want to be sold by the fantasy. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things in, in really studying these, and I mean, you can make a career. There are so many. I mean, just in researching this, 12 machistes in, from the 60s. That doesn't even talk about the 50s or the rest of the 60s. Or the 27 or... that were made during the silent era. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Mario Bava's father, Eugenie, was was a, a craftsman during that period and worked on, you know, Dante's Inferno and Kabiria and all those things. And we're talking 19, we're talking right right after World War I. Uh, so, yes, it definitely has... Uh, a history and a very fine one, but it's just so great. I can't say it enough that having bought, and you know, we've all bought these in pan and scan versions from different companies over the years. And I remember uh, the one Gordon Mitchell did, The Giant of Marathon, which by the way, is a sword and sandal that has a definite science fiction backdrop. I mean, or the Moon Men, you know, they did go back like Flash Gordon. If we had done, if more of these had been done, and I'm, if I did the right research for them, there probably are a few I'm not aware of that are taking place in outer space, or they go to a, another planet somehow. But that takes us back to our, our hero, Machiste, and the concept of Machiste being timeless. You can put him anywhere, and the hero's journey is still as significant. I think sometimes when you get caught up in the idea that a character can only exist in a certain time and place, especially when it's a fictional character, right. you lose the messaging of the character. And I think the genius of Machiste specifically, as uh, he relates to... Oh. Oh, wow. Right in the head. <laughs> to Italian lore and Italian cinema is they got from the beginning, we're going to make a hero that represents heroism, and it has little to do with whether it's in ancient Egypt or outer space or the Greek Olympics of 1930, whatever, you know. that's There's something special about that. Well, there is, and there also, you know, what the, what I think young young impressionable adolescents liked out of this is that here, it, this is what we want from a hero. He cannot be bought. Right. And he cannot even be seduced because how many of these, all the ones with Steve Reeves, which I've seen, and a few with, with Mark Forrest as well, there is always a moment where an absolutely delicious, sassy, inconceivably naughty girl. Who we woman, love. Whom we love, and I love her in that eyeliner, and uh, and uh, she tries her best. 
And remember, the whole Samson, well, you know what? In a way, I think they're trying to go for a Samson and Delilah vibe yeah. in the scenes with the evil queen and and uh, and Mark's character. Which might explain the rebranding, for it, sure. It, well, yeah, this branding was done for a number of reasons, but as we, as we all know now, if this were being shown in Italy, it would not be called Son of Samson. It would be Michiste in the Valley of the Kings or Michiste the Mighty, depending what version you watched. Exactly, and you wouldn't have the American voiceovers telling you things that aren't really, that were never filmed, you know, like where his origins are. But like you said, the whole conceit of Machiste is that he really doesn't come from anywhere and he can be transported into any time frame. Exactly. Which is what a wonderful, you know, thing for a writer because then you're not confined to any one set of, of rules. I mean, if we so chose after this commentary track, we could go write a Machiste movie and put it here in sunny Los Angeles. We could certainly put it in Glendale <laughs> with no trouble at all. But uh, I'm sure that uh, all of this and I'm not sure how long. I'm sure this movie had like a, a shooting date. It probably took a month to shoot this. And uh, I know that they went right from one to another. And our leading lady went from this right to another. Yeah. In fact, she may even have been doing wardrobe fittings while this was still being made. Well, the man who composed the music for this ended up doing two more Samson titled films the very next year. Exactly, exactly. Well, I do believe that the, the film that Mark, the, the Hercules movie that Mark did, was an originally to have been the third Steve Reeves Hercules. But, her, but Steve Reeves had one stipulation about playing that character. He only worked with Franchisi, the director. And when, when that director couldn't make the other one, Steve wouldn't be in it. And that opened the door for Mark Forrest to do it. Can I just say, those poor horses having to swim, I, I, they don't know what's going well, on. Wait, I always feel you, for Okay, them. you're bringing up something that I think should be addressed, and I don't know specifics regarding this particular movie, but I always worried about animal cruelty in these films because we know, because we both work in the horror genre and the slasher genre, we know that movies that were made in South America uh, cannibal holocaust, things like that, animals were abused and tortured and whatever. In these movies, I don't know that horses were not mistreated. I have no way of knowing. There's nothing on the end of, of this credit crawl that's going to assure you that the animals were taken care of. And when you think about how fast these were put together, one can only hope that too not too many horses were hurt with the westerns that were made at this time i remember it was uh, it was it was cameron mitchell that said to me one of the problems with westerns that you just can't address is when you're in shootouts when you're in scenes where indians are attacking horses were killed there, it was unavoidable if you're shooting blankly into a bunch of people horses are going to drop if you're shooting arrows horses are going to get hit he said, we could not show that. Cameron said, I've made a number of Westerns and I've done Western television. So I know what I'm talking about, David. There is no way we can assure those animals being protected unless 
the Humane Society comes in and brings someone on set. And this even went as far as Clint Eastwood and those Any Which Way But Loose movies where we discover afterwards that those chimpanzee, those monkeys were being abused and they used like uh, uh, prods, electric prods, horrible. This is why circuses don't exist anymore. Well, let's hope that on Son of Samson, the horses were treated well. Although, I am thinking of the extras who were buried next oh, to I worry about, I mean, when I, that, so. that opened this movie, and the first image I see are these extras keeping their eyes closed, and a horse just goes by, and you know, that horse is directing itself. Right. You know, you may have animal wranglers on the set, but it's not like, no, I mean, I don't want to get onto a thing about animal cruelty right. because I'm assuming that people were wise with this. And let's face it, Steve Reeves retired down by San Diego with his horses. He collected Arabian horses. Steve would have made sure on his pictures that horses were taken care of. And I, Mark felt the same way about animals, I'm sure. Like but it is something to bring up just for conversation. Totally. Here we are in the finale. She's making a break for it in her hidden, oh no. Well, you know what? This queen had one thing, I'm, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna be burnt. Right. She must have been really kinky to think this is a better way to go unless she knew these 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 crocodiles were going to give her a, a Look, quick bite. You saw her dance. She has a sense of drama. Let's be honest. Well, and she has a sense of kink. <laughs> Nobody wears turquoise that well. But no, I, I'm totally mad about her. I think she's terrific. And she's great in the others. I particularly like Morgan the Pirate, as I guess it's obvious by now. Uh, now, here's the, the interesting thing. In this, both men, the pharaoh, the new pharaoh, and, and Samson, a.k.a. Machiste here, both have girlfriends that are common. You know, they're from the people. And the pharaoh literally... He takes her, he, he makes her his, his bride. But I think but that's part... But she says, you know what? I could live with you and blah, 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 but I'm going, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go off and be take care of other people. That their love interests come from the people goes back to what we were talking about, the accessibility, the audience entry point, to the idea that you too can be a hero. You too can be... Uh, raised to battle, Machiste is the idea. The people are, are who benefit from the idea. So of course he's not going to stay, but their lives are better. He he's he's off. He's to off whatever the to next the, thing. To the pyramids. Yeah. man. Well, I'm going to go back to the gym after watching this. Michael, thank you so much for being my co-pilot, my uh, my right arm on this film. It was my pleasure, David. Mine as well. And I hope you all enjoyed the Son of Samson.